Welcome to Hollywood 2.0. This is Peter Katz. And this is Rich Silverman. Here's an update. Recently I produced a short film called Already Gone based on a feature script about a crook who robs from other criminals. It stars Sean Ashmore from X-Men, Harry Shum from Glee, and uh, it was just covered by Mashable in a recent story called Film as Startups, where we discuss short-form content as a proof of concept for feature films. Now let's introduce our guest. Today we have interactive artist Scott Snibby, who right now is probably best known as the uh, co-creator of the Bjork app, Biophilia. So we'll be talking about with him about all things interactive art installations, Bjork, and related topics. Quick note, we met Scott at the Creators Project event thrown by Vice and Intel. So that's uh, it's a kind of an unusual background. Um, did you study art in school? I think I saw on your website that, that you were one of the, the creators of After Effects. How did you get into all of this? Yeah, so I've I loved interactivity and, and technology since I was a little kid. I was basically just born to do what I do, even though it's still hard to describe what it is that I do. Um, I studied computer science, uh, film, uh, film at mostly animation, and also art in school, um, planning to go into some combination of you know art and technology, creative technology, um, focusing on interactivity. So yeah, I was uh, really I just kind of enjoy doing whatever whatever I'm doing. It's been a kind of blessing in my life as I've been able to to follow follow uh, a, a path that uh, is just doing things that I that I love. So in college, yeah, I, I got in I got involved with a couple of my buddies uh, when in a research lab for computer graphics and ended up working with them as my first job um, in a company that got acquired by Adobe and. Uh, a product that turned into what's called After Effects, which is a, a special effects and animation program. And did you ever have a moment when you were younger where you thought that beyond obviously people grow up to be an artist and they had that you know when you think about you know who their heroes are? Is there a moment that you felt that you were inspired by people from the world of technology and art? Yeah, well, I, I don't even remember when that was because, to be honest, my, my parents were artists and they worked with technology. They worked with plastics and my dad was a kind of strange in, type of inventor. He invented a kind of geometric kite and he was working on a perpetual motion machine, which he's still working on. Um, so How's it going? Uh, not very well. <laughs> not, very, not much progress since the 70s. Um, but there were tons of materials around, just, just raw materials for, for making stuff. We had a wood shop and a plastic shop. And by the way, my parents were Christian scientists, so they weren't afraid we would get hurt. You know, Christian scientists go, don't go to the doctor and don't believe you'll get hurt if you have a good positive attitude. So um, we could do whatever we wanted, you know, use the table saw, the bandsaw. Um, and there were also a lot of books around. I remember there was this huge book on inventors which I read maybe six times since I was a little kid. I was completely fascinated with uh, early inventors and inventions, and especially the electricity and, and inventors like Nikola Tesla, who was probably my, my favorite inventor when I was a kid. So was, was uh, uh, Nikola Tesla hounded out of the business by dark and conspiratorial forces trying to shut down his work? Yes or no? 
he he dug no he he dug his own hole i mean i i really understand nikola tesla i think because there's kind of two two types of innovators and one is the type that's driven by ideas but maybe not so great with money <laughs> the other is a, is a very strong businessman as well so you've got you've got edison on the one side with as a great business person and innovator and tesla is just a, a passionate visionary extremely idiosyncratic individual who just wanted to see his work uh, have an impact on the world in a positive way so how do you balance the 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 role of kind of this inventor and businessman what is that what is the process you know your thought process when you approach new ventures well i'm really driven by passion i mean i'm, I'm driven by the passion of wanting to see things created you know whether it's an app or, or a giant installation that's what's driven me since i was really young is just wanting to see something and, and to show it and share it to other people so then i try to figure out how you do that in life with new ideas in, in new industries and i tried it working at companies like adobe and, and i worked at a research lab called interval research and you know, gradually, especially living in the Bay Area, I came to the conclusion that today maybe the most creative form of expression you could you could have as an individual is to, is to start and run a company because there are really no limitations on what you can do. I mean, as long as you don't run out of money or, or charisma. Um, so, so that's what I've been doing, and I, I think you see it. It's quite interesting seeing what's going on in culture because you see even a lot of Hollywood stars becoming entrepreneurs now you know they can do anything they want they have tons of money and a lot of them like like James Franco and um, Jared Leto you know they're entrepreneurs they have multiple business ventures they're pursuing they're up here in Silicon Valley so I think it's a it's an exciting time it's you know it's kind of like you know in the 19 1920s and 30s in, in Paris with the art movements um, you, I think, um, you know yeah. Sorry, do, do you look at somebody like Buckminster Fuller as as a kind of role model? Yeah, he was my, my dad really loved Buckminster Fuller and and so I was introduced to his work uh very much as a as a kid. I mean, he is more he is more the visionary. I don't think he ever really figured out how to make money off of his work. He tried he, though. He tried. He, he tried. did try. He tried more than Tesla, I I, I think. If my my knowledge of history doesn't escape me too much. Yeah, well, he did have some sex success with the the military, especially in the geodesic domes. Right. Um, however, um, mostly he was trying to change the planet for the better. He was. He, I think, he was one of the first people that realized the problem with with exhausting the world's resources. And um, I believe he invented this term of uh, you know e ecology, the idea of uh, you know looking at the complete system of the planet. And figuring out whether it's going to survive. I was really struck by something I read in one of his books when I was a kid that he said he thought the Earth had just enough natural resources uh, in order to get humanity going on a sustainable path, much like the yolk in an egg. If we, if we, um, you know, I'm trying to read Buckminster Fuller's mind, but it's probably if we use these things wisely and in balance with ourselves and with nature and all the resources and not, not overuse everything, but use things in a sort of equal, in a way that, that achieves an equilibrium between us and those resources. How do we do this? Maybe your dad knows. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah on, 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 on another note, what, um, 
I find interesting is that a lot of people talk about like the message when it comes to like you know what is the story you know whether or not it's a film or a video game, but then there's a whole other thing that people really don't talk about is just the user experience. It's kind of like people always carry their cell phones and like this and they never let go of them. You know, if like you know a lot of people are really have like a really close you know relationship with technology. I was wondering what when you look at the combination of how people really have such a personal relationship with their technology and that experience and then you mix it with art like you know you know, like music or like um, or film or storytelling how do you combine those different elements the interaction hmm. great question well in my opinion interactivity itself is is a medium with the same emotional expressive potential as music or as as film has and it combines with audiovisual elements. Their interactivity doesn't is is not one of our senses, right? It it exists within the context of our visual, our sonic, and tactile senses. So it's a time-based medium, and I I think the the best way to to master or to get ideas for interactivity is to look at the success of other time-based media. Um, I was particularly struck by uh, film and experimental films, especially because in those in those works of art they're experimenting with with ways of time structure and form to completely engage your senses so so that's what i did you know when i was younger you know studying abstract animation and 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 computer science human computer intera- interaction and what i was trying to do was combine those two things because just starting from nowhere with interactivity you know, you're looking at you know decades until you you know innovate and create great ideas. But if you start borrowing from other fields where they've already figured out temporal structure, the other one, of course, is music, the 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 most mature time-based medium. You know, thousands or actually tens of thousands of years old. And look how music and then the more more recent medium of film use time. Borrow those lessons for interactivity and then create these new kind of hybrid experiences. So that's been my approach, although I think very few people sort of understand that that most of what I do is is based on film. Apple does though. If you look at if you look at the iPad and the iPhone, that's what they've done with these devices is they've created a cinematic interface. Windows are actually an awful idea for an interface because you just get a messy desk. You you completely replicated the messy desk that you have at home. I'm looking at mine right now. It's it's a mess. It's awful. You see through to Skype, to my email, to uh, my the web, and and other things I'm working on. Whereas with the iPhone and the iPad, they've created a cinematic interface. You focus on one thing at once. There's wipes, dissolves, fades, transitions, um, animated effects, bouncing, squash and squash and stretch, easing in and out, and so on. So I really think that's that's the future of interactivity is the language of cinema. What what do you want people to take away from from one of your installations? You know, what 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 sort of do you see as the role of of interactive art, and and what's your kind of goal in in creating one of these things? My main goal is actually to place people into an experience where they're not thinking of anything else but what they're doing and the social interactions with people around them, and. That's a very positive state of mind. You know, you're not regretting the past. You're not anticipating the future. But you're completely engaged in the present. So how do you do that? Normally, the way I like to do it is through um, creating experiences that aren't possible in our reality. You create a kind of portal to an alternate interactive universe. And then that's the way... It's, it's kind of the way comedians work. You know, comedians will 
tell you something completely absurd, and it's it makes you laugh, but it also puts you into an alternate reality where you're quite relaxed and present. So, so that's the main goal of my installations. It, it sounds quite kind of lofty and, and abstract, but that's it. And then it, it gets concretely instantiated in, in you know specific forms, colors, and interaction, movement, and so on. Well, uh, uh, it's kind of building on what you're saying. I, I remember when I first saw you at the Vice uh, panel that you spoke at, you were, I heard you talk about the, a little bit about the movie theater experience. And I was wondering, uh, with your expertise, is there, does it need to be changed or, or does it? And is there something that we would need to do for it to stay relevant, you know, for um, entertainment? For, for going to the movies to stay yeah. relevant? That's, that's what you're saying? Uh-huh. Well, what's happening is that people have bigger screens at home, right? They have these giant screens at home. They, in, in many cases, they're getting, you know, as good or, or maybe even a better experience, you know, kind of visually and, and sonically than, than going into a movie theater. And not to mention saving all the time of going there. So that's probably the biggest factor driving down um, people going to the movies is, is simply that they, they have it at home. So people do like to go out from time to time, but generally to, to do something that they, they can't do at home. So that's my feeling as to why uh, the experience of cinema and theaters is, is likely to evolve and, and to eventually include some interactive components. Because there's a scale of interactivity that will never be possible to have at home, and that's this social scale where you have multiple people with large screens interacting. There's great experiences you can have with a Kinect at home, but you know many people don't have enough room in their living room to to even use those, you know, modestly sized games. So so that's my belief. You know, not it's not just the the power and potential and interest of interactivity, which is you know ultimately something like the holodeck, um, but also the practicality of people being able to watch movies at home, you know, quite comfortably for less money and and in as good quality as they can in the theaters now. Like like anything else, to me at least, technology has both pros and cons going for it. And it seems that uh, all this emerging technology that, that we use today can both serve to bring people together and also at the same time to sort of put up these sort of virtual walls around us like instead of going to a movie and having a shared communal experience we're sitting alone in our apartments how do we i mean how how do you as as an as an artist you utilize technology to get people to kind of think about these things and to kind of see how we can individually and as a culture use technology to bring people together rather than to sort of further isolate us from each other yeah well that's one of the biggest goals I have, you know, as a, as an entrepreneur and as an artist. One of the best ways is to have experiences in public space, for sure, um, because people are, you know, alone together in public space very often, especially in a place like an airport, you know, or out on the streets. So making these experiences that are a kind of social lubricant. Sometimes I joke our experiences kind of have the same effect on people as alcohol, <laughs> you know, but but without the downside that they they loosen them up. They have strangers talking to each other and dancing wildly with each other and so on. So one is by creating these social immersive experiences that that don't completely suck you in the way a television or movie screen does. Like that is an immersive concentrated experience, but you completely lose your sense of yourself and other people to be lost in that world on screen. Whereas uh, an experience that is, um, you know, 
social and interactive is one where you remain with a sense of yourself while being able to and your connection to other people while being able to interact with the media. So that's what we advocate for, you know, on the larger scale. Now it is possible to do some of that at home, uh, both physically, like you do with the Connect, where, you know, instead of just having somebody sitting there, you know, intensely engaged with a video game and not not connecting with other people, they are you know socially, physically engaged. But you can also do it on there online through you know new forms of social networks. I, I don't think Facebook and and Twitter and so on are the ways of doing it because that's more like a kind of. It's, all, it's kind of like a personal marketing, like marketing yourself and then getting a kind of positive marketing response from other people. And, and that does make you feel good in some ways, but it doesn't actually give you that sense of social connection. So you have to actually have a real-time sort of conversation or interaction of some sort with people. And that's part of what we try to do with our apps is a, a kind of you know, interactive communication through a different medium. And uh, on the simplest uh, form, uh you could be wearing a T-shirt of an obscure film or band, and immediately somebody could walk up to you, and and have that connection with you. You know, because obviously you don't carry around like Facebook on a t- on an iPad and show everybody your likes. So mm-hmm. it almost seems like if there was some type of augmented uh, reality that could connect people, uh, you know, based on interests and bring them together. That would be interesting. Because right now, it's just, right yeah. now it's just reduced yeah. to a T-shirt. You know, now you just yeah, now it's just kind of like. So you spot somebody and you're in a party, you want to have a conversation, it's hardest to walk up and start talking to somebody. But if they do, if they have that shirt, it's a, much easier to create that connection. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, when we, and when we were reading paper books too, you know, you'd see the, the jacket of a book that somebody's reading and sometimes that would be a way to get introduced. So yeah, a little, a little bit of that has, has gone um, Maybe they'll maybe they'll make a new iPhone that has a screen on the back that you can let people see like, what, you're, what you're doing. That 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 might be something that a lot of people don't want. Yeah, I'm just, yeah, yeah. Uh, wink, wink. Yeah, of course. Let's uh, let's talk about Bjork a little bit. Sure. Do you uh, first of all do you have a background at all in in, in music or is, is is music something new that you're coming to for for the uh, Biophilia project? Yeah, I do. I, I'm not a professional musician, um, but I I love music, and um, my mom is is a fairly advanced sort of amateur musician. She plays the flute and the harp, and and I played the flute when I was a kid. Um, but more, I was more into computer and electronic music. You know, I got my first kind of music program when I was uh, like I think about 13 years old. There was a um, a program called Music Construction Set on Apple II. And I really got into making music that way, putting in music that I knew and also trying to compose music. Um, but never thought of music as a, as a career or, or an avocation. I, I think I was in a band in college, but I, it was a very experimental band. Like I was, I was banging a bike with a, a lock, I think was how I, how I played my instrument. So, uh, but I was a very passionate, you know, listener of music. Um, and I had a radio show too. I used to have a radio show um, for for several years, so I got into. I was always making interactive audiovisual programs on the computer, and then in the mid '90s in my career, I worked in a music research lab at a company called Interval Research for about four years, and that's when I got really serious about interactive music. And I worked with some amazing collaborators, including a guy named Lucas Gerling, who I became very close with, and we still collaborate. 
And we also had a chance to work with some major musicians like Laurie Anderson and Brian Eno. And we were trying then to, to release our work. Um, we were really influenced by the emergence of Pro Tools, you know, this new way of making electronic music, and DJ culture, you know, the way of you know, cutting, scratching, and also manipulating music in real time, uh, as well as video games. That was, that was a time when video games all of a sudden um, took off with the Nintendo and the PlayStation. So we were ma- we mashed up all those things into video game like interfaces where you could create and remix electronic music. Um, it's much like an app called Oscilloscope. There's an app we made called Oscilloscope, which is actually based on some of those ideas from back in the 90s. At that time, we we couldn't find a way to distribute it. We were trying to get a video game deal with Sony, um, but it, it kind of never never went through. Um, so yeah, I've been doing this for about say, you know, professionally since about 1996. And then, you know, I was had a kind of amateur interest for a long time before that. But all of a sudden it became a reality um, when the iPad came out and I released uh, Bubble Harp and started working on, you know, some of those other programs. And then Bjork approached me and um, then really got it, really got it even deeper with music and learned so much about music from her and uh, her engineers and other musicians. What was your biggest uh, challenge? What were your biggest challenges when creating the Bjork app? The biggest challenge was the massive scope of the project, and the number of collaborators, and the um, ambitions of Bjork uh, in terms of what she wanted to achieve. All those things were were huge challenges. Did she come to you with the concept of what she wanted the app to be? Did you just know she wanted to combine music with some kind of uh, interactivity and, and a visual component to it? Yeah, she she had a very strong idea of what she wanted to do. She had already written all those songs and had them in a kind of draft form. And she had the idea that she wanted an interactive experience with music as the primary like quote album experience rather than um, merely a, a, a CD or, or a digital download. So she explored several ideas. First she had the idea to make a touring exhibition that would tour to science museums because the subject matter is nature. The second idea when that one you know didn't seem realistic logistically was to create a 3D IMAX movie directed by Michel Gondry and have that tour for her. Um, however he got busy with his, his movie um, the, the Green Hornet. So then the iPad came out and she saw that and she had also, by the way, been creating the music for this album using new in- musical instruments that she had designed. Some of them were designed for a tablet, an old tablet device called the Lemur. And the iPad looked an awful lot like the Lemur. And so she said, this is the place to do it. I want to make every song an app. I want to have some experiences that are like um, the instruments I made to write this music um, and other experiences that are you know, more like the natural experiences that are the subject matter and the inspiration for the music. So she approached me as well as a couple other um, developers. And you know, we all came together and formed a team to create the project. And did you create the experience so people of various uh, backgrounds from, you know, serious musicians to individuals that don't have that talent could all have uh, a unique interaction with your app? Or is it it just one thing and everyone interacts the same way? 
that was certainly our intention to to make something that worked for all audiences and especially kids to make something that that showed them the the wonder and um, beauty of nature and its connection to music um, to serve as a, a very very new and and um, somewhat strange form of education you know not a not a kind of um, pedagogical or you know didactic form of education but more an experiential form of learning um, that gets you really excited about about topics like arpeggios or our dark matter um, viruses and so on so but the, the app is very very deep and and even really hardcore fans when I give them a demo of the app they see a lot of things they didn't realize were there in the app it's 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 very deep and I think um, is quite early for such a uh, for such an app to exist, you know, in the medium because it's it pushes the limits of what's possible. So, so I think people will keep using this app for a long time and, and gradually kind of discover how it you know uniquely expresses interactive music through this medium of uh, the touch tablet. It sort of uh, reminded me a little bit of. In the 60s, there was a whole kind of experimental school of music, uh, people like John Cage, and I, I can't remember the name of the uh, the composer who did this, but he took uh, colors and he assigned like frequency values to to every color, like on his palette, and then would just create sort of like these abstract <laughs> Jackson Pollock-like paintings, and then create music based on on the the way that the colors hit the canvas. It's like like creating order out of out of chaos, and some of the interactive music stuff on the on the Bjork app reminded me of that that movement in music. Like John Cage did stuff with the I Ching, where he would rip out phrases from the I Ching and like assign frequency values to it and create music that way. Did you have any of those kind of influences in mind, or by completely just talking <laughs> nonsense here? Yeah, absolutely. And one one of the things that I'm most influenced by was surrealist. Uh, the surrealist movement and and surrealist film, and the surrealists love using games to drive their creativity. Like, you know, to just drop pieces of paper on the floor and then create a painting around where they landed, um, or to play games like Exquisite Corpse, where you draw one person draws a head, one a torso, and one the legs without seeing the other person's drawing, and then they're combined into one single painting. So. This stuff has been popular. It was also popular in the Victorian era. These were parlor games that people enjoyed in the kind of bourgeois circles. So um, John Cage really is is the the pinnacle of that expression in in music. Um, but music as a game now is a, is a whole big category, <laughs> right? Um, the idea that you have a game like experience that creates music is is no longer an avant garde. Um, type of idea but but something mainstream because music has been associated with video games uh, for you know what I, what are we at like 20 or 30 years now now when we look at this expanding as a, a category to a point where it's mainstream is it definitely on the business side an answer to piracy uh, by creating a a, a, a business uh, out of music where before there was all sorts of uh, you know ways that people could access the content and go right beyond the the paywalls sure i mean what what are the figures now it's only five percent of music or or ten percent um that's purchased versus you know, versus stolen 
right? It's something. It's something like that. So apps aren't stolen as as frequently and are and are, are more difficult to steal. You have to kind of, you know, hack your device and and you know risk risk messing up, you know, a number of other things on your on your device that's so important to you. Um, so you know, for it's and the price is right on apps at you know between ninety nine cents and you know fifteen twenty bucks. So so yeah, that is that isn't that is a, I think an issue for musicians and a potential revenue stream. My company in particular is very very strongly trying to promote this idea that apps uh, can be not only a, a new creative medium for musicians, but also uh, a revenue stream, a way to make money. As you look at it, that now more than ever, uh, musicians are forced to tour. Maybe maybe tour a lot versus back in the day when they didn't have to do it as much. So it's almost like these pressures to be a professional musician versus, you know, where in the past they were able to tour when they wanted to, but they also had that music, you know, so they had multiple revenue streams. So now it's like a table that the legs have been knocked out, some of them. Yeah, musicians are making most of their money from touring now, so they're touring more and more frequently. Depending on the musician, that's tricky on your voice too. You know, it's it's um, you can your body wears out <coughs> as a performer, uh, and also the flood of, of of supply of musicians on the touring scene is also driving down um, the 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 costs for concert tickets and and also just the availability in venues. So, so yeah, I think. And also, not everybody can get out there to a club. It's it's not like the best thing culturally for for everybody, you know, especially for people who now have kids and so on, but still enjoy music. Um, and also, not everybody can scramble to get tickets for for artists they really love. So, the app is a way that people can have the immersive concert-like experience, be completely immersed in an audiovisual experience of an artist's music. Um, you know, without the the complexity of finding the you know waiting for the one day the artist is somewhere you know within 500 miles of them and trying to get tickets on time trying to get to the location uh arranging for you know babysitters and so on if you have kids so i i think it's a great way to experience music immersively again and again um in a way that is is similar to the experience at a concert so you're a good you're a good friend of uh artists out there you know as you progress with your um your creations because i think more than ever they, I think they need that kind of uh, support on the technology front because if you look at like Tapolis or you know Rock Band, it's like when you start creating ways that people could have that interactive experience, and then the music is caught, I guess, in a walled garden. So it's almost like you're protecting what they work so hard to create. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, there's a lot of range of what you can do in terms of an app you know there's a game like experience and then there's kind of a pure art you know far out experience and then and then the middle ground on 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 biophilia unless i missed something here there's there's no way just to play the album straight through like a traditional album um was that was that the decision to do that is that based on bjork's idea that, that this is not a traditional album that this is strictly an interactive app so we're not going to have a, a way to play the album straight through or is it also a way to protect the music to make it harder to sort of record mm -hmm. off of the ipad well it was more philosophical that that the whole point of of the app is to have people interact and participate you know not just lean back and enjoy it um we did actually make a movie version of the app 
that um, plays in uh, when we when there are some really nice digital theaters at, at the places that she's touring. We we play that, and it may be released at some point. Um, and that's a nice experience actually to lean back and to just enjoy it. But yeah, we were we were trying to focus on what the medium is 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 about, which is about interactivity, and to encourage the participation with the music. So you explore it yourself. You know, when you do, there's this quote by Lao Tzu that I, I think about a lot and motivates my work. I hear and I forget. I see and I remember. I do and I understand. So by people participating in something, they really learn it. For anyone who's ever drawn, uh, drawn something, you really understand how you learn. If you draw someone's face or if you draw a chair or you draw a building, you've seen that object in a much much deeper way than you can merely with your eyes you know now like every single detail is is embedded in your mind same thing with interactivity and music i was also wondering why there isn't any sort of a a social collaboration tools built into the app like there's there's some of some of the, the songs you can like create your own music and save it but i was looking for ways like if i wanted to to share my creation with other users of the biophilia app that uh, that that's not possible. Yep, that's true. And um, there's a lot in Biophilia, and there's even more that we wanted to put in. So that isn't part of the app, and it, we would love it to be, and it might be someday soon. I see. So it's really there. There's just outside considerations that that um, business considerations and all that kind of thing that go into the final yeah, making yeah. the final product what it is. Yeah, yeah. We I just see. had to make some yeah, yeah, some yeah. trade offs. There is a way in Crystalline. There's a there's a little way in Crystalline. The crystals you make, you can email to other people, but but that's it so far. But we would like to have a comprehensive way, and um, you might see that sometime soon. Yeah, I guess you know one of the one of the great things about these apps is that you can push updates to them. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, what what musicians um, you know you've worked with uh, Bjork? What other ones have uh, seemed to be receptive to uh, your ideas? Um, what other what are the artists? What are the yeah. musical artists? Yeah, that you've that seemed uh, very receptive to your ideas that you spoke to and that wanted like start experimenting. Well, I can't mention any names, but we we have ta- been talking to a lot of different artists, um, and we've been into a lot of major labels too. I mean, somebody the head of a major label, you know, when we asked him, I said, oh, you know, are you, are any of your artists interested in in doing the, this kind of thing? He said, you know, what do you mean? Every one of my artists has come in here and showed me this app and said, can, I, can you do something like this for me? So there's definitely an interest from artists. And, and, of course, there's a few other artists we're working with right now. There are all kinds of um, business complexities with the record labels to, to get over in order to, in order to do that. The Bjork Project was in a really sweet place because she had all the rights to her music and she could decide to, to go app first and then work out the other um, business arrangements for uh, distributing the CD and uh, the publishing rights and, and so on. Uh, but most other artists have a pre-existing relationship with the label, and then uh, we're spending a lot of time negotiating with the label. Everybody has great intentions. It's, uh, it's just the complexity of all the different divisions and the percentages and, and so on. So things are going a little more slowly than we thought, but you'll be seeing um, more music apps from us quite soon. Because you see a lot of, uh, I guess there's a lot of red tape, you know? But on the flip side, you see all the, a lot of web startups that are able to, uh, like, you know, uh, Turntable FM and there's various ones that are able to work with it. So it's kind of like, it's like a balancing act to be able to move forward with, uh, you know, obviously from the technology front. I was wondering what you think of an idea of where 
if people would uh, purchase music, that they would have some type of representation in like a game world, like a digital good that would represent their purchase. So it would show people that they're a legitimate fan. And it's almost like I said in the past before, it's like wearing a t-shirt of a band. But so it's just a, some way to like, I guess use something that have a visual representation of somebody's commitment to a musician. And it's put into like a, like a Farmville like environment. Just, you know, so it's like if yeah. iTunes took that to show people that they were fans, you know? That's a terrific idea. That's a terrific idea, especially if you, other people can see it. You know, it's funny that Facebook and Twitter, you know, the biggest social networks, actually don't have any of that. There's no sense of achievement. So there's a, there's a social network I really love. It's, it's a very nerdy one because it's for programmers, but it's called Stack Overflow. Yeah. And I think they've done one of the best jobs of giving people achievements. Like the more that you, uh, that you participate in the site, with different kind of activities like posting questions, answering questions, marking something as helpful and so on, the more that you get points and also these badges of achievements and also unlocks abilities that you can you have more and more power on the site. I think Wiki, Wikipedia also does this and they're, they're, they're relatively good at it, although it's a little more um, obtuse. It's not automated the way it is on Stack Overflow, but I think that's a terrific idea. It's kind of like when you go to Amoeba Records and you see that there's a lot of people running around purchasing vinyl and some of, the, some of the joy of having that collection is when people come over is that you could show it to them, you know? And yeah. I think you lose a lot of that ability of being kind of like the chief of like a genre or whatever and being able to show them people something. So I think that Facebook really has the, the foundation with the social games that if someone could be able to like work with you, like an iTunes and, and a Facebook where you purchase on iTunes and then boom, you have a visual representation in some social game. So I think it's a great idea. It's a great idea. I'm sure some other people are, are working on that, and that's, that's a terrific idea. And then the long, awkward pause that we'll cut out. Peter, did you have any other questions? Um, <laughs> I, I, I always have questions. Sometimes you know, I don't, I don't want to bog, <laughs> bog out the thing. But uh, I, was, I was wondering, like, if you had a limited budget to, um, mm -hmm. to, to create any of your ideas, what, what would be your first, you know, what would be, what would you, what would be area you would focus on? Well, I do have a limited budget, don't I? Unlimited. <laughs> or if I do have one, or if, or if I had an unlimited Not budget. Not a limited okay. budget, <laughs> unlimited. Oh, a, a limited budget. Everyone has unlimited. a limited but if you, you basically just yeah. kind of like oh, yeah. the clouds well, parted and the gods just threw yep. billions at you. Yep. Um, there's two main things, and they're, and they're related. So on the physical side, what I would really like to do is make these m interactive movie experiences. Experiences where you go through an environment with screens and other surfaces that are reactive to your, to your body and to touch. And it tells a story, like with a, some huge story, you know, one of the great stories, like the Star Wars story or, you know, one of these Pixar films or so on. Um, that would probably be, you know, that's at the top of my list, and I, I dream, I've dreamt of doing stuff like that my whole career, and I hope I get there at some point. Feature-length, immersive, interactive experiences you know, that you have with other people in space in some kind of interactive environment. Would that be something that would be done like as a roadshow, like the, in, in the, the 50s and 60s when they did these CinemaScope roadshows and I like went from theater to theater? Because I'm thinking something like that would be difficult to scale. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of ways to do it. it but, be done I said, in a, but, in a but Rich, I said unlimited budget. So come on. 
Oh, so right. Yeah, yeah we, we, we can build no, a, no, no. 100,000 theaters like this. Cool. Yeah, yeah. we're, we're talking about start... an alternate reality that there's just billions of dollars raining from the sky, and you could yeah. basically implement any idea. But what was the next uh, idea you had, Scott? So the next idea is essentially the same thing on tablets, is, is to reinvent the movie in an interactive touch form and to have um, a, a world that you can touch and interact with and advance a story. Um and be a part of. So I think biophilia comes the closest to that, and, and that's why I was so pleased to be a part of it. Um, but to do it more from, from the movie side. Uh, and again, it probably makes most sense with something totally fantastic, again, like a, like a, like a Pixar or um, you know, some, something with these really fantastic characters and a whole alternate world. So same thing, you know, big multi-million dollar projects. Not not that huge compared to the the budget of movies, you know, more like you know a few million dollars rather than um, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. And if it's done as a tie-in with a movie, you know, you could divert some of the marketing budget to create this new interactive experience with the movie. So, so that's my long-term dream, and I I hope it comes true. And you get to sell a film as an app, you know, and where it's more protected. Exactly. exactly. How do you feel about three D? I'm curious. Uh, cause the, is is it is it a gimmick or does it make movies more immersive and can it be applied to um, the tablets? So, it is. It is so. It does make things more immersive. I've only seen a handful of 3D movies because they make me I, the the discomfort really really bothers me. I don't like eye glasses on my face and it kind of makes me a, a tiny bit dizzy or headache. But for things that were really worth it, I, th- I think I've seen like three or four 3D movies for that reason. You know, I, def- I saw Avatar. I saw the Wim Wenders movie recently. Um, I saw the Werner Herzog, Cave of Forgotten Dreams. That was awesome, yeah. The Wim Wenders and, movie was good too. Yeah, yeah. And, and 3D massively added to the experience of those movies. But still, for me, it was such a physical hardship, like literally a pain in my head that you pay twice as much for. So I kind of have a feeling other people feel the same way I do. And I'm quite concerned that there might be a crash with the 3D movies for for that reason. Um, maybe it's just a technology thing. My wife's actually a, has a PhD in, this, in vision science and she's even published papers on this, this topic and she's explained it to me. It's just that it's not your brain's not designed to see 3D uh, this illusion of 3D projected onto a flat plane like in real life we see things at different depths but in a 3D movie the things aren't really at different depths they're just the different disparities i know this is getting kind of technical here but they're they're just different horizontal disparities they're not different ver, different depths in the in the z plane and so it's also unknown what effect that has, has on young kids young kids aren't supposed to look at these 3D things at all because it might actually hamper their brain development. So a lot of issues with 3D, even though it's such an amazing medium, maybe they'll be worked out techno- technologically, um, but I'm not convinced that it's, it's a long-term uh, phenomenon. Could be wrong, though. <laughs> the, uh, the current state of, of glass, glasses-less 3D is not, not that great. If you've ever been able to play around with a, a 3D cell yeah, phone, yeah, really, cool. it, it's, it's okay. But you really have to hold it in a certain way, and it still, I think, has the same problems that, that you're talking about. Yeah, they use this lenticular technology like you see with this kind of Jesus, <laughs> Jesus right. prints and things like that. Um, and um, it's kind of cool, but it's, it's hard to see looking at that all day long. 
Um, but I'm sure, you know, I'm sure eventually they'll solve all these problems. It would be a lousy experience if you're at a movie theater and you're at the, you got the wrong seat. And so you just saw the, you know, you didn't see it the right way. So you're just like suffering through data focused version of the glassless uh, 3D, you know? Yep. Yep. Ah, so, so yeah, that's the story. But, you know, it, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Ask, ask a bunch of kids and see what they're, <laughs> what they're doing. <laughs> but, um, yeah, well... Uh, this, this was great, and I really enjoyed the podcast. Um, I'm pretty, I'm pretty much good. I think, uh, I think this, this was good stuff. Richie, have any uh, questions, or you're cool? I am super cool. Super cool. Awesome. I've never been cooler. Awesome. Well, hey, uh, Scott, you have a great weekend. You too. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. We have a lot more Hollywood 2.0 coming up for you. And if I had something to clever to say, I would be saying it right now, but I don't. So I'm just going to say you can find me on Twitter at Rich Silverman. And you can find me at PeterKatz.net, KTZ. And check us out on Facebook, Hollywood 2.0. And to find more innovators like Scott, go to thecreatorsproject.com. 